we turn in the scriptures to a very beautiful passage that uh, should be read, in my view, every Advent, every season that is this season, the season of the God who comes. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed an heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of God. Thank you, John. It's a privilege to privilege to have uh, you read scripture for us this morning. Thank you, brother. Well, we have been in the Gospel of Luke, and now we are turning to the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, you may be saying, "Why stop there? Why stop now?" Uh, if you're just joining us this morning. Congratulations, you're at the start of a new series. If you like what you hear today, you can just stick with us right on through for a while. Uh, but we are here with the letter to the Hebrews, where we left off in the Gospel of Luke, we heard about the gift that was available to us if we ask, seek, and knock. And God promises to give to all who ask of Him the gift of His Holy Spirit. We talked last week about what a gift that is, the presence of God abiding in the life of a believer. What a powerful gift it is. As we come to the letter to the Hebrews, we're going to pause for a moment, partly because we're getting into Christmas time, partly because I'm in the middle of PhD studies and I'm studying Hebrews, but also partly, also partly, because I believe the message of this letter is extremely relevant to the, what is happening in the church today. The letter to the Hebrews is famous for being anonymous in its authorship. What is clear from the letter to the Hebrews is that this message was given to people who were starting to draw away from the church. We read through the letter language of drift language of growing dissatisfied, of shrinking back. We see this in this letter. And there's many people who've come through two years of COVID and are beginning to say, what is the church all about? Is this just sort of my social club third space where I give all my time and my hours and my energy? What, what is this if I'm not doing something? 
If the church is primarily an activity center, well, you got a lot of choices today. If the church is primarily a cult or a ritual, well, that really becomes laborious over time. And that's not really the kingdom life that we have been learning about in Luke. This community that is receiving the message is a community that was beginning to experience shame and disgrace isolation from the world around it. Again, now more than ever, seems to be voices both outside the church and inside the church who are saying, really, what's the point? Why are we even in this? And so as we come to the letter to the Hebrews, I just want to give you a little bit of background, and we'll have a shorter message today. So I'm just going to tell you up front, you won't be satisfied with with all that we cover. I'm going to have a shorter message today, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background right now as to what's going on in this letter. We'll have plenty of time over the next several weeks to unpack what's going on uh, in this epistle. But by way of background, I've already told you the who. The who, we're not sure who authored it. Tradition has said it's Paul. Many voices have said that. But I think there's actually a good warrant in the text to say that it probably wasn't Paul. Other traditions have have come through that it was maybe someone else from Paul's group who wrote it. Barnabas has been a name that's been thrown out there. Priscilla has been a name, or Priscilla or Prisca has been a name that's been associated with the letter. The reality is this is different from most of the other epistles that we have because it doesn't begin with a greeting. I, Paul, with Timothy, to so-and-so. We don't have that. What we do have is some of the highest prose you'll find in all the New Testament. What we also have seems to be a fairly advanced rhetorical argument. What we also have seems to be a work of exegesis through the Old Testament pointing to one common theme of exhortation, which is God has given us a great salvation in Jesus Christ. And we would be foolish to walk away from that. For this reason and and, and many others, I'm in the camp of people who believe that this was originally an address. It was something that was heard first. In that, it was likely written down and transcribed and then circulated after. But for all the questions about who authored this epistle, What is abundantly clear is its message. And in fact, it's very fitting as we look at verses 1 to 4 this morning that there isn't an author named. That's because the whole point of these opening words in the epistle to the Hebrews, the whole point is that God himself has spoken. And he's spoken through Jesus. And we're going to take a few minutes this morning to meditate and to reflect on that. In terms of when it was written, uh, likely before the temple was destroyed, based on the author's argumentation later in the letter. So we're probably looking at a date before 70 AD. And a compelling argument has been made uh, that, that there is a mixed audience here of Jews and Gentiles. With that, I invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Would you join me? Father in heaven, we come 
to this text, and we pray that your spirit would enable us to understand, that we would hear spiritual truths, that our minds would be fixed on Christ. And so, Lord, we, we just set aside the distractions that we might have walked in here with, and we humbly put ourselves at your feet to receive what you might share with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 to 4 uh, are really an expansion of a very simple, simple truth. That is that God has spoken to us through his Son. God has spoken to us through his Son. Just sit with that for a moment and, and, and contemplate the reality and the magnitude of that statement. This letter presumes a God who exists. A God who created the world, a God to whom every human being is accountable. A God who is loving and is good, but here, a God who communicates. Again, in a world that is so lost and wondering about the purpose of life, the meaning of life, Hebrews comes into this and speaks the truth that God has something to say to us. That God is a communicating God. I encourage you if, you, if you don't have the, the wherewithal to, to sort of follow with us as we get into the deep waters of these verses, at least, at least get your feet wet in the reality that God has something to say to you. That God is an intelligent creator, capable of communicating. Yes, communicating even to you. You may have doubts, you may have questions, you may have things you don't understand. None of that can stop God from communicating to you. And so maybe before we even begin, you just need to take a moment and sit and reflect to understand that the God of creation speaks. He has a message to say. And on the basis of that premise, we, we, we launch in with these words. In the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Those are actually the opening words. At many times, in various ways, God has spoken through the prophets. We were talking about this in Sermon in Scripture this week, and one of our interns, he said, you know, I'm looking at these verses, and basically, like, the whole Bible is in verses 1 to 4. <laughs> but it's hard to argue that. So you may say, I, I haven't read any of the Bible, but, but if you understand verses 1 to 4, you've, you've pretty much got its message. Before Jesus came, the Spirit of God would come upon certain beings, be they angelic beings or human beings. God's Spirit would come upon these beings, and he would art, the Spirit would articulate the word, the thought, the truth of God for human beings. God would interrupt and when I say they are, the ways are various, they are very various. You have, you have Joshua standing before the commander of the army of the Lord, told to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground. You got Moses standing before a bush that's, that's, that's alit with fire but is not being consumed and a voice coming out of the bush. I mean, for goodness sakes, you got a false prophet uh, a, a sort of a spiritual mercenary, Balaam, who's, who's given a revelation of, of, from God through a donkey. 
God knows how to communicate and to get his message across when he needs to. The times and the ways were many and they were various. This is the story of the scriptures. He spoke through priests. He spoke to kings. Even bad kings like Saul had the spirit of God fall on him and prophesy. He spoke through farmers. He spoke through shepherds. Through the poor, through the rich, through court prophets, through people who've been exiled. He spoke to people through signs and through spoken word and through even the written scriptures themselves that would have been reproduced in Jesus' day. God was a speaking God, but the point here is not that God had spoke. That's not the newsflash. The newsflash is that God has now spoken in these last days through his son. So the emphasis here you need to know is not that God is speaking, but the one through whom he is speaking. The one through whom he's speaking. There is a definitive shift in climax that God is choosing to make himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. I shared this illustration in our family service earlier today. A couple years ago, Joanna and I had the great privilege of being able to fly an airplane, right? We got on an airplane, we flew across to the UK, and we're over in, we're, we were in the UK, and we got to walk around and see these old cathedrals, and they're absolutely fantastic. Like architecturally, uh, from a tourist perspective, they're, they're really, really cool. And you walk around and you say, there's really no other building in this area like this. There's, there's old castles. Yes, we know what a castle looks like. There's, old, there's all these old, sort of old things, but this cathedral's amazing. And you look up and they got these huge windows, right? These stained glass windows. And they were so, they were so well planned and well thought out. Because as you walk around the building, and oftentimes the story will be told through the windows. You, you'll, you'll look through this window, and then you'll look through that window, and you come to the next, and the story is advancing. And in an age that didn't have the internet or sort of mass print publication, that was how you would communicate. Good architecture. And so people could, could slowly contemplate the story of God through these windows. Well, that's a bit like how God was speaking in the past to the forefathers. At many times and in various ways, you would get a glimpse into God and his ways and his realm through these windows, through the revelation to the prophets. But then as I was telling the kids, then you go inside. And as impressive as the building is on the outside, you entirely forget about that when you go inside. Because when you go inside the cathedral, the whole thing is lit. And the whole design and purpose in building a cathedral is to lift you into a state of worship and wonder about God and his kingdom. You could go through and find the story of God by reading through the prophets. Jesus famously said it earlier in Luke, or he's going to say later, sorry. He's going to say later in Luke, if, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone who comes back from the dead. But you can construct the story of God by, by listening to those prophets. But once you know the Son, once you've seen the Son... It's like being led into the cathedral. You, you, you enter in and you behold the glory and the wonder and you see. You could peer through the windows. Yeah, absolutely. But once you're inside, 
You're brought into true worship. Everything else is blocked out. All the distractions are gone. And there's a clarity. And there's a clarity that comes through the revelation of the Son. God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son. The idea is that when Jesus came, his message was the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a a shift into a new age, the last age as it were. Many people ask me, Pastor, Pastor, are we in the last days? (laughs) Yes. And they say, ooh, 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 who's who's the Antichrist? I say, we've been in the last days since Pentecost. (laughs) The The prophecy of Joel was fulfilled. We are in this age of the Messiah. He is reigning and he is ruling. But it doesn't often look that way, does it? You see, if this community is going to not retreat from Christ, if they're not going to walk away, if their love for him is not going to grow cold, if their faith isn't going to shrivel up or, sh- or shrink back, they must be captivated by the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. I had an old professor back in seminary. He taught us church planting. He'll, I'll never forget what he said. There's Marty Show and Labor. He said, what you win them with is what you keep them with. In other words, he's telling future ministers and church planners, he says, if you start a church and your basis of the church is music, well, guess what? You've won them to music. Congratulations. If, if you start a church and the basis of the church is community service and you get a bunch of people involved in community service, well, guess what? You've won them to community service. If you win them to an experience, to, to an ultra-convenient style of religious community, well, that's, that's what we've won them to. But the church is comprised of those who've been won to Christ. You see, they've pledged themselves to Him. And they will ultimately understand this message. So that is the controlling and the dominating thought. If you don't hear anything else today, you need to hear that, that God has revealed, he has spoken to us in these last days through his son. Now, with the remainder of the very little time that I have, I want to just point out a couple of things about this son. Three things. The Son, first, is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. We've been talking about that. Secondly, the Son is the image of God. And finally, we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, what that title is. So, Jesus as the Word of God. We're told in verse 2, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Isn't it interesting that the Bible speaks of God's creative power as a function of speech? Genesis 1 and Genesis 1 begins with God creating through speech. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were made, an echo of this same truth here. But we're told further that through him also the whole universe is held together. 
You recall the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Son, is the eternal Word of God. He stands above creation. He is the means through which it came into being, and He is the one for whom it was made. He's both its author and its goal. If you look through the book of Proverbs and you you read about creation, wisdom is personified. And again, creation is seen through speech. God communicates himself and he creates in his power through his speech. Jesus Christ is the word of God. It's eternal. This is who this son is. Next, we're told in verse 3 more about the Son, and here we see how the Son is the image of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. (laughs) Word. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. It's a term that can mean the off-shining, the off-shining of the glory of God. It can be used in a sense to mean either the, the, the shining that emanates from an object or the shining that re- is reflected by an object. But the idea when it comes to light, whether it's emanating or being reflected, it's, it's the same thing. The light has its source in, a, in another object. The light is the means through which we behold and through which we apprehend, through which our senses are engaged. In this way, Jesus is the way we see the glory of God. Anything that is good and and, 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 and beautiful and illuminating about God is beheld through Jesus in him. But the the story doesn't stop there. He's, He's also the exact representation of his being. Does anybody still carry around coins? Anybody carry around coins? Raise your hand if you carry around coins. Some of you? All right. I gotta say, I gave up on coins a long time ago. (laughs) Coins, you know, I know they're worth something, but... But if you look at a coin and the way a coin is made, an impression is stamped upon that coin. And the government controls who makes those impressions because if you could, if you could make your own impression, you would be able to make counterfeit money, counterfeit coins. Or in the old days when you would send a letter, you would get hot wax and you would put the wax over the envelope and then you would take your own seal, your personal seal, or maybe your family seal and you would impress it upon that envelope. And that impression was your mark. It was it belonged to you or it belonged to your family. It was exclusively yours and it was the way having that impression sealed when you got the, the letter, whether it took a month or, or, or a year, somewhere in between, when you got that, you knew it was from you. It had been authenticated because it bore your seal. It bore your imprint. It's this language of impression that is 
referring to Jesus here. If God were to make an impression or to make a mark, to represent himself in some image, some characterization, it would be Jesus. Jesus is the perfect impression, the perfect representation of God. Not just an aspect of him, but of God in his nature, in, in, in the fundamental reality that undergirds who God is. If you understand Jesus, if you have beheld him, you have beheld God, which is exactly what he tells us. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in case you haven't been following along, in this opening statement, the author is saying, yes, God has spoken in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different times before, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Who is the son? He's the eternal word of God through whom and for whom everything was created. He is the radiance of his glory. He's the part of his glory that you can see. And he in himself, this Jesus, is the exact impression of God's fundamental being. What this means, kids, is your flannel graph Jesus cannot in, in any way encapsulate the fullness of who God is. That, that in, 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 your, in, in your recollection and your thinking about Jesus, you're probably, dare I say you are, incomplete. So many people I talk to struggle with the fact, they say, look, I know Jesus loves me, but I don't know if God loves me. Can I say that's a false dilemma? Put that thought out of your mind. You say, well, I believe if, if, if I met Jesus, he would, he would show me grace, but, but I'm not sure about God. Yes, he would. Or others who say, well, you know, God of the Old Testament is, you know, he's a bit scary. But then there's Jesus, and we just sort of forget about all of that. Because we skim over those passages where Jesus is flipping tables. Where Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. When he come to say, when he says, I came to kindle a fire, and I wish it, I wish it was already kindled, but but I have a baptism to undergo first. The idea is when you come to Christ, you come to God. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. And can I say we worship Jesus because we're worshiping God. But it doesn't just stop there. He's not only the radiance and the exact representation, but he also sustains things by his powerful word. L literally, he, he is carrying things. He's, he's bearing all things by the word of his power. Jesus. 
Jesus is holding literally the universe together by his word. There is nothing that is existing and is persisting or will come without it. This is the one through whom God spoke. In other words, you may not really give much time to a shepherd from Tekoa. Or you may not give much time to a guy who got vomited out of a fish. Or you may not give much time to a donkey who's speaking to a false prophet. You might not, you might not get all, all these stories together and straight. But, but when the creator of the universe has something to say, when the eternal word becomes flesh and dwells among us, there's a sense that, yep, you've been led into the cathedral. You can see and you can behold. Jesus, the Word of God, Jesus, the image of God, and finally, Jesus as the Son of God. Listen to, listen to the description. The first two verses focus on what God is doing and communicating through the Son, and now in the next two verses, three and four, the focus turns on what the Son has done and where He is. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Notice the path. After the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. How did Jesus provide purification for sins? He went to the cross. And on the cross, he died and took the punishment. He bore the wrath of God, bore the sin of the world, and by virtue of his perfect, sinless offering of obedience to the Father, we can now be reckoned righteous. We can be considered pure and clean because he has atoned for our sins. And after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. Now, it's a little bit confusing. We think of Jesus just sitting down, but the path was actually descent first and then ascent. Before Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, he had to come down as the Word made flesh. And he ascended his throne after he ascended the cross. But coming down from the cross and put in the grave, <laughs> he's risen again and he ascended. That's where Christ is. He is at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now the right hand is the place of privilege. It's the place of the heir, the person who's going to inherit all things. The one that God has appointed to share in the entirety of his kingdom. And so in verse 4, we come to the conclusion that the author offers to this sentence, and it's begin to transition into his argument. He says, so he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Think of the most glorious created being. Some of you left the house this morning, you thought, you know what? I'm pretty glorious today. Looking good. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's not you. <laughs> Probably not any human. Angels, however, have been known to inspire fear. People have been tempted to worship angels for how glorious they appear. But the risen sun is far superior to them. 
Jesus Christ is greater than angels. You'll hear more about that next week. And his name is greater. The earliest confession of the church was that Jesus is Lord. You see, that's his title. He is Lord and Messiah. The Savior that God has sent. For Jesus to be the Word of God means that he reveals God to us. For Jesus to be the image of God means that he is the way that we, we experience and see and understand the glory of who God is. And for Jesus to be the Son of God, it means that he is the one through whom we see the work of God, the saving work and redemption of God. I told you you'd be disappointed. Books have been written on these phrases. So I want to encourage you, if there's something that's piqued your interest, go search it out. There's so much good reading you can do out there. A lot that has to do with the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the titles of, of Jesus. But we'll have more time to unpack that in weeks to come. What I want to leave you with today is a word both to the ministers that we've inducted and to those who are being baptized. Quite simply, it's this. Jesus will sustain you. He is sustaining the universe right now. He will sustain you. As a part of that sustaining, he will enable you to serve in his kingdom. He will give you graces of the Holy Spirit, which will be experienced as gifts to other people. And through their outpouring of worship to Christ, their offering of their lives to Christ, you will receive good things. You'll experience the blessing of God. But for those who are pouring their life out as an offering, which is all of us disciples, we need to know that, God will, that Christ will sustain us. Secondly, you need to know that he has purified you. He's made you pure. Let's say that again. He, he, the risen son, has made you, yes, you, where you sit in your seat, you, he's made you pure. He has atoned for your sin. Because of that, that he will sustain you, that he has cleansed you, you can trust that he will glorify you. He will bring you into his glory. That means that you will become like him. You will grow in increasing measure to look like the image of God that you were created to be. You will also be glorified in your physical body when Christ returns in the great resurrection of the dead and before you enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God, you will be given a glorified body just as Christ has a glorified body right now. And you will share in the glory of his reign. 
and his authority over the new heavens and new earth, you will be participants with him. You will share in his life. And now I bring you back to say, if those are the things that God is trying to say to you through Jesus, why would you listen to anything else? What else are we listening to? Why would we not be in church? Why would we not be in the Scriptures? Why would we, why would we choose to, to enter the mental void of checking out, whether for you it's through alcohol or sport or entertainment or comfort or what? Why? So often we run from God, but this is what He's trying to say. The work is done. He will sustain you. He has purified you, and He will glorify you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the love that You have shown us in Jesus. May you speak these timeless truths to us throughout the week. Lord, we need to hear them. We need to know you. We're grateful for what Jesus has done. May he be praised among us. Amen.